Well, we have spoken a great deal about the cross this morning. We've talked about its power. We've spoken about its gravity. But it seems to me that when we as Christians speak about the cross, at least in some instances, we're speaking by way of a synecdote. That is that we're using this aspect of Jesus' life to refer to the totality of what he accomplished through his incarnation, his obedience, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the promised hope of his return. After all, tens of thousands of men and women and children died on Roman crosses. And yet we don't claim that there was anything redemptive in their suffering. We don't claim that there was salvation in their bloodshed, and we certainly don't remember their names so many years later. Yet, we as Christians declare that this particular man on this particular cross, at the end of this particular life, has turned the tide of human history. The prophet Isaiah describes the life and the cross of Jesus Christ in chapter 53 of his prophecy. Verse 2, he begins in this way. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. When I was younger, elementary school age, one of my favorite movies was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It fell into this interesting category of PG-13 movies I was allowed to watch before I was 13 because it was just so good that I think we made an allowance in the low household. But there's a, a basic premise to the film, which is that Indiana Jones is an archaeologist, and he's traveling the globe looking for the cup of Christ, or what is called the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus is said to have drunk from during the Last Supper. And in one of the climactic scenes in the film, the main character, Indiana, and the protagonist find themselves in this cave that is full of cups, and each is given the opportunity to choose from these hundreds of options which they believe the cup of Christ actually is. And so the antagonist goes first, and he chooses this jewel-encrusted goblet, gold-plated, worth far more money than I can conceive of or have ever had in my bank account at any one time or collectively. <laughs> and he chooses wrongly. And so then the task falls to Indiana. And he passes back and forth among the cups until he finds one that is in the back that is neglected and overlooked. It's profoundly unimpressive in its appearance. Carved from wood, barely sanded off, with no form or majesty that it would attract the viewer's eyes. And he chooses correctly. And in this scene, I believe that this profound truth is illustrated, one which Isaiah lays hold of, this great paradox that stands at the heart of the Christian faith, that the Messiah of God has no form or majesty in his appearance that we should be drawn to him. This glorious paradox that Christ Jesus is at the very same time the arm of the Lord and yet in his humanity he bears no form or majesty. The very incarnation of the eternally begotten son of God and yet he is called the carpenter's son. 
the savior of mankind and yet despised and rejected by men, the author of all beauty and yet not recognized as such, sustaining and filling and giving being to the very heights and depths of the cosmos and yet walking along the roads of the ancient Near East. What sort of God is this that we serve who takes on flesh, not as a king in a palace or a warrior built for battle, but as a carpenter with calloused hands, with no form or majesty that we should desire him. But this has, I think, profound implications for you and I in our day-to-day lives because if God has chosen to save the world through the incarnation of his son who bears no form or majesty, who doesn't seem like much by worldly standards, that perhaps God is at work in the ordinary and the profoundly unimpressive in our own lives, advancing his kingdom. You know, I'm convinced that at the end of all things, the lives which will be seen to have had the greatest impact for the kingdom of God will not be those of Nobel Peace Prize winners or congressmen or politicians or people who are high and mighty in the eyes of the world. Instead, it will be ordinary, everyday people who lived lives of patient obedience to Christ and quiet faithfulness to the gospel. It will be single mothers who raise their children in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord despite its difficulties. It will be blue-collar fathers who worked as unto Christ. It will be auto mechanics and school teachers and janitors whose lives had no form or majesty in the economy of this age but are of infinite worth in the kingdom of heaven. But Isaiah says more than simply what Christ appeared as. He goes on to say in verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. There's an old song that we won't be singing this morning, but it says, essentially what Isaiah says, it asks this question, O man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, alleluia, what a Savior. Jesus is identified as a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, but pay attention to how it is that he comes to be defined in this way. We're told that he's the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but in verse four, we're told that he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. And so it is not his own sorrow that makes him the man of sorrows. It is our sorrow that he carries. It is our grief that crushes him. We might experience something like this when our friends go through profound loss. Maybe a friend walking through a divorce shares with you the agony of that experience and you begin to feel the weight of it in some sense. Maybe a sibling loses a child and you in some sense begin to feel the weight of their grief, yet Christ bears our grief in such a profound and significant way that it comes to define him utterly as the man of sorrows. And what a difference that makes when you boldly approach God in prayer, 
when you cry out, Lord, I doubt. Lord, I am suffering. Lord, I stand on the precipice of giving up. It is difficult for me to get out of bed. Lord, I am in agony. Christ Jesus responds to us, I know. And not in some intellectual way, in the sense that I might be able to imagine what that's like. No, instead, Christ can respond to us, I know because I have borne in my body to the cross the very grief that now causes you to cry out to me as the man of sorrows. I know. And can intercede for you because of that. Yet even still, the cross casts its shadow over the life of this man of sorrow. Because Isaiah goes on, verse 5, he says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. Jesus does not simply carry our grief. He bears our judgment. He, in his body, bears the judgment of God which so rightly belongs to you and I. And some people have recoiled at this idea, finding it morally repugnant. They ask questions like, what sort of God hates humanity so much that he has to kill Jesus to stand beside of us? Uh, Perhaps you're not a Christian in this room and you're asking such a question. Perhaps you are a Christian in this room and you struggle with that and you are also asking such a question. I think we have to admit that many people have come to this conclusion because Christians have failed to do a good job of explaining what stands at the heart of the cross, where Christ is wounded for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. Because what we are not claiming at the cross is some sort of a cosmic old yeller scenario. It is not as though mean old Father God has chained rabid humanity to the woodshed and at the last minute as he's about to put us down, Christ takes the bullet for us. No, the cross is not showing to us a hateful God. It shows us a just God, but it shows us a profoundly loving God, one who is so profoundly loving that he would substitute himself in our place and endure the just judgment that we deserve as people who have set our faces against him. John Stott, a great theologian in the Anglican tradition, calls this the self-substitution of God. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Father in love sends the Son. The Son in glad obedience submits to the will of the Father. Nothing is taken from him, but he lays it down gladly. Jesus says as much in the Gospels, no man takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. And again, before Pontius Pilate, when Pilate says, you know that I have the authority to kill you, Jesus says, you have no authority over me. And together the Father and Son in love pour out the Spirit on the people that the Son has purchased with his blood. So then, see the glory of the Christian gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that the one of infinite worth has made himself lowly, 
The fountain of all joy has borne in his body our sorrow and grief. The righteous one is condemned as a sinner so that sinners might go free. The son is judged as a rebel so that rebels might be called sons and daughters. Maybe this is news to you. You know somebody in the choir or playing in the band and you got dragged here as a supportive friend or spouse. I pray that you would see that this is profoundly good news. The best of all possible news. That God has so loved the world and loved the world in this way that he has stood in our place bearing the judgment that was ours. Maybe you're a Christian here. And this doesn't feel like news. It's something that perhaps you've grown callous to. But I just want to plead with you that you would hear the words of the Apostle Paul, that you would recognize that we are to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The cross is not something that you and I as followers of the Lord Jesus grow beyond. It is something that we, more, we grow more deeply into and are increasingly shaped by as we walk in the newness of life that was purchased by the death of the Son of God. And so I pray this morning you would see again or maybe for the first time the glory of the cross, the work of Jesus, by whose stripes we are healed. Let's pray. Almighty and ever-living God, you and your kindness have sent Christ. And Christ, in your love, you have obeyed the will of the Father. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would remind us afresh of the power of the cross. That you would lead us to sing in response to this tremendous reality that stands at the heart of our faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ.